Hey, this is Gavin Jackson, and here at the South Carolina Lead, we're continuing our summer look at quote-unquote interesting stuff. And this one is out of this world. AT, some music, please. While we normally focus on news and politics, we decided to look into a different subject matter, which actually was prompted by a congressional request. So, kind of news, kind of politics, actually. And that's UFOs, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, as the government is now calling it. We speak with Dr. Kelly Smith, the Department Chair of Philosophy and Religion at Clemson University, to break this report down and delve into some deeper questions about the universe and alien life. Join us for this discussion right now. Before we delve into the intelligence report on UFOs released in June, I want to just get a little background from our guest, Professor Kelly Smith, who is Chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion at Clemson University and also a Professor of Philosophy and Biological Sciences. He has his master's in zoology, specifically evolutionary genetics, and his doctorate in philosophy, both degrees from Duke University. Professor Kelly, welcome. I feel like we have someone right out of a Michael Crichton book with us today. <laughs> well, I haven't gotten into novel writing yet, uh, but I do have a, an unusual background, let's say. Yeah, so I, I kind of gave those uh, the outline right there, but get a little bit more abstract first. What led you to this intersection of philosophy and biology, and, and what keeps you going? Well, I decided when I was a... a an undergraduate that I wanted to be an academic, but I was good at lots of different things and I couldn't really choose. So I basically just didn't. I, I went to graduate school primarily in philosophy, but I also uh, took courses and did research in biology and got a dual degree. And then the work that I did once I got out uh, was sort of, I mean, every discipline has a boundary area where the issues are more philosophical and biology is no exception. So I did a lot of work on genetics and genetic explanation. And then at some point, I, I did a thing with NASA talking about what, what exactly life is, which mm. is another boundary issue. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is, these are really interesting issues, and these people are smart, and they get my Star Trek humor. So <laughs> maybe I should work with them a little bit more. And then that's just blossomed into a, a decades-long uh, career for you at this point then what do you what are you researching now what are your your main focuses now at this point well i've got a number of uh, research in interests within the sort of general category of social and conceptual issues surrounding space exploration and the search for life on other planets so i've written about whether or not it's ethical to attempt to message alien worlds which is something that we're increasingly thinking about I've thought a bit about planetary protection issues, how much we should worry about the possibility of life on other planets, whether it's microbial or what, and then what we should do about that. Uh, I've talked about um, some religious issues having to do with the impact of discovery of extraterrestrial life or extraterrestrial intelligence on religion. So, I mean, a whole potpourri of items there, uh, pretty much anything that's related to this issue, but is broader than most scientists and engineers would concern themselves with, I'm very interested in. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it's very broad, but I mean, just so much to it. Very interesting that we have you on the podcast today. Uh, and again, the reason that we, we kind of connected is because Clemson University and their media relations department put out an email a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, we have an expert that can talk about this new report that was just issued. And that's what I want to get into right now. Uh, in 2020, Congress mandated the Office of the Director of National Intelligence with input from the Pentagon and other agencies to compile an intelligence assessment of the threat posed by unidentified aerial phenomena, 
or UAP, which I guess is the new UFO. And this report, issued in June 25th of this year, is the government's first unclassified assessment on the topic in half a century. And I think it raises a a few more questions than it answers, uh, at least this unclassified version does. So, Professor, break down for us what you got out of this report. Well, the first thing I, I guess to comment on is the is the switch to the UAP language. That mm. that's a classic rebranding. I think <laughs> scientists view this and they say, well, we really don't want to be associated with the craziness of UFOlogy that that's been going on in the past. But but there is something here that we need to talk about. So you know, they came up with a new name, which basically means the same thing. I think. You know, this report focuses on a number of incidents recently that involve the military. So uh, there's better supporting evidence, um, you know, video, decent video cameras uh, in the cockpits and, you know, in some cases, radar images. And, you know, the the pilots are more reliable observers than your average guy in a pickup truck in the middle of the (laughs) podcast. So uh, there's a number of these issues. And... The bottom line is uh, we can't explain exactly what they are right now. Uh, And the report doesn't take a very clear position on what they are. It just points out here are these phenomenon. We're not sure what they are. They could be instrumentation glitches. They could be advanced terrestrial craft, either American, Chinese, or Russian. Uh, they, They could be, one possibility is that there's some sort of weird counterintelligence scheme designed to make our adversaries waste a lot of time and money doing research on these these kinds of aerodynamic abilities that aren't possible. And then the last possibility is is that they're aliens. And, and that's the least likely. But on the other hand, I think a lot of scientists are arguing now that that's a possibility we need to consider seriously. It is not a crazy thing to consider that there might be extraterrestrials and that those extraterrestrials might visit us. There's all kinds of caveats that you have to immediately uh, put on there, but it's not a crazy hypothesis, and so it's one of many hypotheses that needs to be considered. Yeah, and I think, Professor, too, what what that category was, they didn't necessarily say alien, they just said other, I think, right. <laughs> in the report, just other, a nice right. big old catch-all. But what is the need to to research this, in your opinion? Why why look into this further? I mean, I know this uh, this came to light Back in 2007, thanks to a report from the New York Times looking into some defense uh, budget spending, looking into these these UAPs that was kind of hidden, you know, buried in the huge defense budget. But they've been looking into this for a while. Just wondering why that is such a, a critical thing to look into, specifically the, the alien unexplained version of this. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's two basic responses you can give. The, the pragmatic response is. Uh, the Navy is concerned that these things are flying around their carrier battle groups, which are highly sensitive, and they don't really want anybody observing them. Plus, there have been a couple of, uh, apparently, near midair collisions with these things. So the Navy's very concerned about protecting their, their investment in all this technology. A very general point to make is science is about explaining what we can't understand presently. And it seems fairly clear that whatever this is, it's something that we can't currently account for. And so when you have something like that, you have repeated observations that seem strange and can't be explained, what you should do is you should get science involved to figure out what's going on. Even if what's going on is a mass delusion of some kind, that would be a really interesting finding, right? So uh, either way, I think it's the kind of thing that we can't ignore. 
So we're talking about 143 sightings between 2004 and 2021, like you said, predominantly spotted by military aircraft uh, and recorded in some situations. So as as far as the average person, we just talked about maybe some national security implications right there of these, you know, UAPs. But what's the average person take away from this? I mean, we have this report here saying we have 143 unexplained sightings and people didn't seem too freaked out by that. Is that kind of odd in your opinion? Or do you think people are going to react differently? Or is it just we, we have no idea how to react to this because it's just this well, other category? I, I mean, the first thing to say is that uh, we don't really have a lot of good data on public reactions to these kinds of things. Uh, the data that we have, if you want to call it that, is oftentimes, you know, news reports of various kinds, which which doesn't really pass muster as scientifically respectable data. There, there haven't been any serious public surveys about this in a while, and and when they when they are conducted, they tend to be very focused on some very specific question. So so there's that. But you know, anecdotally, I can say that I find it curious that the average person is not more interested in this. I, I teach classes that talk about these kinds of things. And, uh, the last class I taught, uh, in the spring, I asked my students, look, let's suppose that we found, you know, incontrovertible evidence that there are extraterrestrial beings and, uh, they're, they're flying around earth in these little drone things. How concerned would you be? And most of them were like, meh, (laughs) <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's not, it's not the Cold War era anymore, right? huh? <laughs> it's not affect my Starbucks in the morning. I mean, you know, if they're dropping bombs, okay, I'm concerned. But yeah, just, yeah. just knowing that we're not alone, they they didn't care. And you know, as someone who's deeply interested in this, yeah, I find that strange. But it is a good illustration of the fact that that people researchers tend to lose sight of the fact that their interests are not the public interests and that they're they're sort of biased in a way in terms of thinking this stuff is the coolest stuff ever. So I don't know. I mean, one one thing that people have asked a lot of questions about is, you know, what would be the impact on religion if we were to discover that there's extraterrestrial life or intelligence out there? And again, that's that's very much an open question. Yeah, definitely something that would affect a lot of people's beliefs too. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering. I want to move on from another from this topic to another one soon in a moment. But just, what do we need? Do we need a spaceship to land outside of the White House? You know, for people to take this to be like, oh my gosh, versus you know a microbe that lands on a meteorite in the United States or something like that. I mean, what what do you think it would take for people to really care? Well, again, I don't really know what people think, and and uh, so it, you know, my guess would be that there's a huge range of views. And so it's difficult to sort of predict what quote unquote people would think. But based on the anecdotes I just told you, it, it seems to suggest that most people are not going to change the way they live their lives unless this is somehow having a significant impact on their life. So again, if the aliens are dropping bombs or yeah, that's abducting make people <laughs> or conducting medical experiments, that would really concern people. But if they're just flying around and we don't really interact with them, I think some people would find that really interesting. Um, and the vast majority of the population probably wouldn't. On the other hand, when Darwin published The Origin of Species, it took a while for people to realize the implications. I mean, it was a very popular book. Lots and lots of people read it. It was, it was actually a bestseller. And you know, after 10 or 20 years, people began to realize that this has implications for how we view ourselves and our place in the universe. And I think 
you know, confirming the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence or life would do the same thing over time. It would, it would prove that we're not alone in the universe. And if there are two of us, there are probably many, many more. And I think over time, people would begin to think about how human beings fit into the bigger picture in a fundamentally different way. And it's hard to assess all the implications that would have. Very fascinating. I want to move from Earth to the final frontier, Professor. And, you know, first of all, got to ask you straight up, do you believe in the existence of alien life? And if so, what do you think is the most likely form it would take? Well, I I, <laughs> I believe in the sense that I think it is true that it is extremely likely that we are not alone in the universe, right? I, I wouldn't call that a belief exactly. I think of it more as a scientist. Like the the probability that the hypothesis that we're not alone is correct is extremely high in my personal opinion. Now, that said, it's not clear where this life is or what it's like. So in, in a practical sense, it might not do us a whole lot of good if the, the next neighboring intelligent civilization is 10,000 light years away because uh, unless they have technology that we haven't even really dreamed of, uh, we're not going to be able to have much of a conversation with them. And of course, the most likely life as an evolutionary biologist is is microbial. There's a decent chance that we will find at least microbial life in our own solar system. That That's a question that we're likely to answer in the next 20 or 30 years. So microbial life is by far the most likely. The, the more, quote unquote, advanced the life is, the more difficult it is to evolve. And there's a bit of a debate in the community about, does that mean that intelligence is very rare because it's so incredibly difficult? Or does that just mean that there's a whole lot more microbial and simple life forms than there are intelligence? I, I tend to be on the other side where I think, you know, intelligence is difficult to achieve, but not impossible. And if life truly is everywhere in the universe, there are going to be plenty of other intelligent beings that they eventually make contact with. That's my personal view. Yeah, especially when you factor in evolution in billions of years. I mean, look at look what we did in a couple billion years versus, you know, what could happen when you look at all these, what, 100 billion galaxies, each containing a billion trillion stars. I mean, the likelihood of all that happening, it's, it's pretty high, like you're saying. Yeah, I, I've dealt a lot with people who have doubts about evolution. And, and one of the hard things to convey to them is, Yes, all this is very unlikely. Your intuitions are correct, but billions of years can do a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. When you're talking about astrobiology, you're not just talking about billions of years. You're talking about billions of years and hundreds or thousands of billions of stars. <laughs> so, you know, one way of putting it is if we truly are the only life in the entire universe, then I would be tempted to use a miracle to explain our existence. Because at that point, it's hard to argue there's a scientific explanation since it's so unbelievably unlikely, <laughs> given that we're the only ones that occur. That's another way of putting my argument. I think there's probably life in the universe. And if I'm completely wrong and there's no life, then obviously science has got this just totally wrong. Well, from science to pop culture, I want to do a quick deviation. I mean, what do you think when we look at, you know, all the books, all the movies, all the different shows that talk about this topic, you know, from UFOs to, to life out there? Uh, do you feel like anything maybe closely aligns with how you believe in, in, in what this could be? I mean, do you, or is it all just so, you know, hypothetical that no one really has it right? 
Well, when it comes to actually alien life, finding microbes on another world does not make for a very interesting plot yeah. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, they're all but they're all based on intelligent life and intelligent life that that either has interesting things to tell us or wants to eat us or something like that. So most of the stuff about intelligent life is is pretty unrealistic. Sometimes it's unrealistic in interesting ways. You know, arrivals aliens are very interesting. I don't know how plausible they are, but they're definitely interesting. Now, that said, I think there are some interesting things being produced now that deal with other aspects of humanity's future in space. The Expanse uh, show, I think, does a really good job of thinking about possible political divisions within humanity in the future. So they have, you know, earthbound humans, and then they have Mars, which has got a really good Navy because they're, they're very interested in defending their independence. And then there are the guys that live out in the asteroid belt. They're like the poor guys. They they mine all the resources for everyone else, and they don't get any respect, and they have very little political control. That strikes me as a, a plausible scenario for the next, say, 100 years. That might be the kind of thing that we encounter, which, again, raises all kinds of questions about whether you should settle in other areas and how you should set that up and how you what kinds of regulations you have and who enforces those regulations, none of which have been thought through very carefully. Yeah, intergalactic socioeconomic debates we can get right. into, <laughs> but I, I hear you too. But uh, let's talk about ethics because you said that's a major focus of your research too. And I think people are familiar with SETI, which is that search for extraterrestrial life, uh, you know, sending out radio for radio waves and, and trying to listen to the universe and, and see if anything comes back to us. Uh, talk to us about your research into that and the ethical issues that, you know, searching for that life presents in your opinion. Personally, I don't think there's a whole lot of issues with just passively listening. I mean, it is a question, if you hear a signal, what do you do about it? And there's sort of a loose agreement that we won't reply without some kind of consultation. Sending signals is another matter. Now, we've done that several times intentionally, mostly as publicity stunts. So Doritos beamed a commercial for their latest corn <laughs> technology out there. and Lexus beamed the sound of an engine out there. But there are people, uh, Medi International is a group of scientists who are thinking about doing this in a very systematic way. And there's a project called the Interstellar Beacon Project run by uh, an eccentric millionaire who wants to beam the contents of Wikipedia to potentially inhabited worlds. And the weird thing about that is there are no regulations of any kind. So anybody can do anything they want to. They don't even have to tell other people what they've done. And one of the things that I and a few others have argued is, that's crazy. <laughs> we, can, we can debate what the regulations should look like and how onerous they should be, but having zero regulations is indefensible because there's no way around the fact that what, however, you, however low you think the risk is, there is some risk, and it's a risk shared by all of humanity. And so you shouldn't be doing this without some kind of minimal regulations or consultation requirements in place. But a lot of the people who are involved don't like that because they think that the public will, because of crazy concerns about, you know, aliens that want to eat our brains, will prohibit their work. And that, I think, is ultimately both weirdly naive and dangerous. <laughs> so, uh, but again, part of the problem here is that the average person just can't 
really wrap their head around this as a serious hypothesis. And so they don't care about Medi because they figure it's never, ever going to result in anything. If it does, they will care. But then it's too late. Yeah, we'll be scrambling at that point. We've we've seen that play out in the books and pop culture, right? It's right. Why don't we think about this before? It's always reactionary instead of right. and there's always uh, a few guys who said that that everyone should think about it, you but nobody should, yeah. paid attention to them. Right. <laughs> well, I'm glad we're talking to one of them. <laughs> we go on record. But professor, before we uh, before we wind down, I want to talk about again. You're talking about rudimentary life. We're talking about microbes and things like that. Uh, you know, I don't know if you saw this, but. Back in June, uh, some scientists announced that they were able to revive a tiny multicellular animal called a, I don't know if I'm going to say this right, Bedloid rotifer, I think I said that right, that had been frozen 11 and a half feet down in the Siberian permafrost for 24,000 years. Now, these rotifers look like little translucent worms, but they not only woke it up, but it was able to reproduce. Now, you talk about ethics in biology and astrobiology. Uh, what are some of the questions scientists face when we find such ancient life, whether it's on our planet or another one? Well, first of all, it's rotifer, but that's rotifer. That's, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I didn't do uh, so great in astronomy um, and biology. <laughs> well, I mean, the the issues with reviving terrestrial life on Earth and discovering life on another planet are probably very different because anything you find on Earth shares an evolutionary origin with life on Earth. And, and in a way, that makes it more problematic because uh, anything that's evolved along with current life could pose health problems, right? I mean, they're, they're going to use similar sorts of energy sources. They're going to they're gonna have the same sorts of markers on their cells. And so, you know, they could be infectious or whatever. And so, you know, you have to really think that kind of thing through very carefully. Um, and then aside from infection, if you do things like revive the woolly mammoth, which is what some people have talked about doing, then, you know, you have to worry about the impact that might have on the ecology. I mean, the current ecology is not designed for woolly mammoths. So if they start wandering around in large numbers, that could cause all kinds of issues that you may not have considered. When you're talking about life on another world, presumably it's an independent evolutionary origin. That's not a given because, uh, Mars and the Earth, for example, do exchange material over time. And so it's it's possible that we find life on Mars and it's Earth life. Or weirdly, we find life on Mars and learn that Earth life is actually descended from Martian life. So they could share an evolutionary history, but most likely they would be completely different. And on the one hand, that makes them way more interesting scientifically <laughs> because there's just a lot more you can learn from them. On the other hand, it, it does tend to tamp down certain kinds of concerns. It's less likely, though not impossible, that a microbe that evolved on a completely different world would be able to infect us because it would be very difficult probably for that microbe to be able to interact with our cells in the right kind of way. It could dissolve us, but infecting us would be difficult. So um, it, it, to some extent, it's a different set of issues. Another thing that you run into is when if you – if you interact with microbes on another world, uh, you don't have to worry so much about a shared ecosystem. So on Earth, if someone wants to sort of argue for the rights of animals or plants or whatever, there are two kinds of arguments that are run together. One is, well, we don't want to get rid of the rainforest because it makes oxygen and we need oxygen. <laughs> and the other is, well, we don't want to get rid of the rainforest because it is valuable in and of itself. If you're on another world, then presumably it's going to be hard to argue that you share an ecosystem with these microbes because 
they're not going to overlap with ours. Um, so the only argument you have left for for saying that we should preserve them or whatever is is that they're intrinsically valuable, that they're just the kinds of things that deserve our respect and protection. And I'm not saying that's a bad argument. I'm just saying it's different from environmental ethical arguments on Earth. Well, just to wrap up, Professor, I want to get your thoughts on just, you know, you mentioned the meaning of life and talking about that. I know it's a question on your website, too. You know, everyone wants the answer. What's your take on that when, you, when we look at life in general and, and the whole point of all this? You know, sometimes I used to think about that as a child. It used to freak me out, still freaks me out. But when you think about, you know, all this in, in the grand scheme of things, how do you how does this how does this mesh for you? Well, uh, now I'm going to wax extremely speculative. <laughs> okay. uh, so, like, the biologist in me is going to shut up now, and I'm, I'm just here comes the philosopher. Perfect. <laughs> right. Let's channel the the wild and woolly philosopher. I, I think for me, I, I don't really believe in divine beings and things like that, and I do like the natural picture of the universe in general, but it leaves a lot of people cold because it's difficult to construct meaning and purpose in a purely mechanistic physical universe. And so one of the ideas I've had that I'm going to eventually write a book about is uh, that maybe the way we should think about the universe, we don't have to, it's a choice, but maybe the way we should think about the universe is as uh, a canvas on which more and more complexity is being developed over time. And as living beings, we're on team complexity. We, we therefore like complexity and the diversity which enables complexity. And maybe we can construct a very general kind of moral system based on respect for and assistance in creating complexity in, in all its forms. That, that could include complexity amongst human beings, complexity amongst societies, complexity amongst star systems. It doesn't really matter, the overall guiding principle would be complexity is morally good and we like it and we want more of it. Now, again, that's incredibly speculative <laughs> and it raises in many ways more questions than it solves. But I think it's an interesting perspective that we may be able to adopt eventually. And last question, we're living in the times of conspiracy theories. I mean, maybe that hasn't changed. It's just become more of a forefront now with the internet and social media and all that stuff uh, whirling around. But um, what what do you think is the ideal conspiracy theory of aliens or the prevailing theory or maybe a theory that you have that you want to share? Maybe not. Maybe you don't want to speculate. But um, when it comes to this and, and people's thoughts on this and if they can trust the government when they get these reports and things like that. Well, I, I'm not sure that realistic conspiracy theory isn't an oxymoron. But, but <laughs> if we're going to sort of speculate about that, the, the most realistic, weird alien scenario, I think, yes. is that we are living in a simulation mm -hmm. created by other beings. There, there's a very famous argument called the simulation argument by Nick Bostrom, a British philosopher. And it is an extremely good argument, in my opinion, and very simple. <laughs> it's basically based on three premises. And if you accept those premises, you accept that it's way more likely that this universe we're in is a simulation than that it's quote unquote real. And of course that raises the question of, well, who's running the simulation? It could be future humans who are doing his history experiments, but it could just as easily be some kind of advanced alien being with computer technology. So if you, if you want a realistic 
weird alien hypothesis. Focus on that one. <laughs> yeah. Something to think about there after this uh, very enlightening conversation, discussion about all things, uh, you know, UAP and uh, the final frontier and, of course, the possible simulation that we live in. Professor Kelly Smith, thank you so much for talking with us. We appreciate it. Sure thing. I enjoyed it. Well, just like F9, we took this pod to space. Yeah, you didn't think you'd get away from a Fast and Furious reference there. Thanks again to Dr. Smith and to our listeners. And stay tuned for other upcoming episodes as we continue our summer listening series. Avocados at IHOP. (laughs) 